My name is Jeff Foley, and this is my story. Last June, I finally broke down and went to have a heart scan done just to keep on top of my health. My family has a history of heart disease, and with today's technology, why take a chance, right? The process was quick, and in about 10 minutes, I had my results, a heart score of around 800. Let's just say that the higher heart score was not what we wanted to see. I had also been in for a physical and complained about my leg bothering me. After an x-ray and an MRI, my doctor felt that I had some cartilage damage as a result of a motorcycle wreck I had back in my youth. He sent me off to see an orthopedic surgeon to have the knee cleaned up. The surgeon was not concerned about the, the cartilage, but rather a one-inch mass on my fibula that appeared to be cancerous. Needless to say, I was a bit stressed out. Here I sat with a not-so-great outlook on my heart and the prospect of surgery on my leg. And all I, was like, all I could think of was, Father, what's going on and what's your plan? After much prayer and talking with Tian, I was compelled to seek out advice from someone I knew and trusted to give me a straight answer on what I should do. Terry dealt with surgery every day and would not steer me wrong. He was much more adamant that I talk to a cardiologist and at least have a stress test done. So that's what we did. What a great relief, too. The stress test came back normal, and I was thanking God for the blessing like that. We scheduled the need surgery. Flash forward to September, about two weeks before the surgery, and for the third time while mowing the lawn, I could only make it about 20 minutes before being totally winded and kind of tight in the chest. Tian and several others asked me to follow up with a cardiologist who reassured me that he had seen others with a heart score much worse than mine and with my general health, I should be fine. However, to be on the safe side, we would uh, do a heart catheter to make complete sure that there were no issues before going to surgery. That was the, the moment the father was protecting me. All four of my arteries were 80 to 90% blocked. It was a miracle that I had not had a heart attack. If they had an available spot, slot, they would have taken me into surgery right then. Again, my prayer was, Father, okay, what's the plan here? I want to grow old with my wife. I want to see my children grow up. You have some reason for this, so please show me what your plan is. I want to be strong. I want to trust him. And this was a big one. Those that know me know I am a warrior, and I have a hard time letting go of control. But what was I supposed to do here? And there it was, the answer to my prayer. Jeff, you need to trust me. I have this. It is bigger than you, but it's nothing that I can't handle. Oh, great. You want me to just give it up, let go of all the worry, and, and just let go. And again, there was the answer. What is your worry going to do other than get you into surgery room soon, the surgery room sooner? I have this. Surgery day came, and it was probably the best thing that I've done for myself. The arterial, arterial sclerosis was so bad that I'd actually grown a fifth artery on my heart. Here was God being bigger than the disease. He had made a place for the doctors to bypass my heart where there shouldn't have been. Yet, there it was. Since surgery, I've been in a season of giving thanks for such an incredible blessing, but I still wondered, Father, why did you let this happen to me? What am I supposed to do with this gift you've given me? And last Thursday, I got that answer when I was asked to share this story with you. A story about a guy that didn't know how to let go and let God work in his life until he didn't have a choice. I was given the gift to learn to trust the Father and to be patient for him to, to care, to take care of the things as he sees fit. Yes, things could have turned out differently, but they didn't. 
All this to share a story about how the Father knows what he has planned for us, plans to prosper and not to harm, plans to give hope and a future. My name is Jeff Foley, and this is my story. So, after weeks of buildup, however, every verse we've studied have been leading up to Noah and the flood of Genesis. We are there in chapter 7. So, in chapter 7 of Genesis, it describes the flood, the ark, and, the, and Noah. And it does so in, in the form of an epic poem. So, I always try to outline the passages of the Bible, especially when they're poetic. Usually, I don't present it to you because it just didn't show anything interesting. But this week, it does. And so, I want to show you Genesis chapter 7 in its poetic form. So, when you read Genesis, you read it down the columns in order. But actually, look crossways and you can see the he- Hebrew poem that's going on. Verse 1, 7, and 13 says, Go into the ark, then they go into the ark, then they went into the ark. Verse 2, 8, and 14 say, take animals with you. They took animals, and they had animals. So the emphasis here is God speaks, then they do it, and, and then it, you know, by the time the flood comes, they have obeyed God. Verses 4, 10, 12, 17, 24 says, seven days until it rains, seven days later it rained, 40 days and 40 nights it rained, 40 days the water rose, for 150 days the water stood. Then verse 5, Noah obeyed everything just as God had commanded. And there's no duplication. That's going to be important later in the message. And then verses 6, 11, and 21. Noah was 600 years old. Noah was 600 years old. Noah lived. So this is obviously written in a way, uh, and this is how they memorize ancient history, is you make a very repetitive poem, and then when you go to recite it to your children and grandchildren, it makes it easier to remember. This was something you would sit around a fire and tell. Um, it, uh, it, people don't do this so much anymore, but you remember old fairy tales were told this way. You know, Goldilocks goes in, and uh, there's a chair. No, there's porridge and a chair and a bed, but each time they go, someone's been you know, eating my porridge, sitting in my chair, sleeping in my bed. Someone's been in mine too, and and someone did it to mine and messed it all up. And it's it's repetitive, so you can remember it. Now, the fact that Noah's story is told in a poem does not mean the events didn't happen. Much of ancient history was recorded in the form of epic poems to make them easier to remember. This morning, we could do a lot of things with Noah. Now, one thing we're not going to do is mess around with the verses that talk about Noah being 600 years old. We've actually already done that about two weeks ago. So if that's a question you're really interested in this morning, do visit our website. Our podcast deals with those ages in a message I did about two or three weeks ago. We're also not going to spend any time arguing about how so many animals could all fit into a boat of that size and all get along and where did they shovel all the, you know, that they were collecting for 150 days. So So uh, that's an interesting question, and a lot of people debate about it, um, whether there were dinosaurs on the ark with them and so forth. Um, I I just think we have something more important to do today. Perhaps we'll come back around to that. Also, the scope of the flood. Second century, second century Christians argued amongst themselves about whether the flood described here encompassed only the Holy Land or the whole earth. And Christians today still debate that question. It's a debate worth having. But it's going to have to wait for another time because we have something even more important than that I think we want to do with this passage today. What I want to grapple with in Genesis chapter 7 this morning is the fact that this is a super scary story. 
This is really quite an awful story. God is wiping out every living thing because of human sin, plants, animals, and people. Only Noah and his family will be saved. But notice this. Notice this in the story. Even the ark they're rescued in has no sails to catch the wind, no rudders or steering wheel. It is literally a big floating box. In fact, if you go back to the Hebrew that we translate ark, ark sounds kind of nice, you know, ark of the covenant and the ark of Noah. That makes it sound like something extra special. But in, in the Hebrew, it really is just the word for box. God literally says, build a big box and get inside. The waters will rise and they will whisk that box off to wherever the waters want to take them. You are not in control. You don't have any say anymore. The chaos flood owns you once you get in that box. I think a lot of you uh, may be able to relate to that this morning. You know, you, get, you, you may get a cancer diagnosis. You can certainly try to revise your diet. You can try homeopathic treatment. You can go to the Mayo Clinic. may make the difference, but... You, you, you know that it may not do anything. You are owned by the flood in that situation. You're in the box and it has no rudder. The economy goes south and your company starts tanking. You can try to work a lot of overtime, hoping to elevate yourself above others in the department before the layoffs start. You can start looking for another more stable, economy-proof position. You can go into multi-level sales. They have something to fall back on. Might make a difference, but honestly, none of that may do anything. You're owned by the flood now. You're in the big box with no sails to catch the wind. Your husband or your wife may tell you they want a divorce. You can start laying it on really thick, saying all the things you should have said, washing all the dishes you should have been washing for the last 14 years. You can call me, the pastor, and beg me to order your husband to accompany you to counseling or to order your wife to come back home like a good Christian wife. You can run all over town telling everyone you know your version of what went wrong. None of that may do anything. You're owned by the flood now. You're in the big box with no steering wheel. Your kids fall in with a bad crowd at school. They won't do anything you say. They lie to you about everything. Everything you think you know is a lie. You don't know which world you're living in anymore. What's real, what's fabricated. You can try to take a family vacation to reconnect. You can ground them and scream at them and take their phone away. You can pull them out of school and homeschool them yourself. None of that may do anything. You're owned by the flood now. The big box being dragged along wherever these deadly waters are going to take you. We want to believe we have the power to rescue ourselves from the chaos flood. But we don't. Which leaves us with just one question. Is this hopeless? I want to look at a couple of key verses from this poem in Genesis 7. First is verse 16, when the animals are coming into the ark. It says, a male and a female of every kind entered, just as God commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. Why would God shut the door behind them to keep the rain out if he didn't intend to save them? 
Why command them to build a box in the first place if he didn't intend to save them? They're not in control. They're no doubt horrified to be going into that ark and being rushed off to wherever the floodwaters are going to take them. But isn't God now in control? And if God is in control, doesn't that mean that they're going to be all right? I want to stop and share with you an ancient history uh, literature lesson for a moment. By now, many of you know that every uh, continent has one or two cultures that remember the flood. Native Americans have a flood story. The Chinese have a flood story. The aboriginals of Australia have a flood story. Israel's neighbors, the Sumerians and the Babylonians, both have flood stories. And some of these stories are quite similar. Some of them uh, include a man and his family who are saved on a boat. And some of them, he brings animals also. Some of them are so similar that at the end, he releases a dove and a raven to search for dry land. Some of these stories, the written forms we have are older than the written forms we find of the Genesis version. So I read these stories in preparation for this message to see what they said. I especially focused on the ones from Babylon and Samaria because those are Israel's neighbors. And here is what I found. In these other stories, there were many gods, and those gods hate humanity. It says the noise of humanity rose to heaven and annoyed them. And so they unleashed a flood intending to wipe humanity out, and it was their intention to kill them all. But there was a clever man who builds a boat to escape the flood. In one version, he builds a boat that's shaped like a perfect cube. And so he has a great difficulty launching it when the flood comes. In another, the boat that is built has sails and rudders and an entire sailing crew so they can control where it goes in order to escape the wrath of the titans. The flood gets so out of hand that it scares the gods who unleashed it themselves and they go into hiding to get away from it. The man cleverly survives and offers a burnt offering. The smell of the offering brings the gods out of hiding. They're starving to death because they've been hiding for so long. They eat the sacrifice that the man has provided, and to reward him for his cleverness, they turn him into a god, and he joins their pantheon. The Hebrew version is really, really different. The Bible remembers this flood very differently. The way the Bible remembers the flood, there is only one God. And he is wiping out humanity for their sin, not because they annoy him, but he also wants humanity to survive. And so he chooses Noah and he makes a way. It's God's idea to build a big box in the Bible's version, not something humans snuck off and did behind their back. And God himself shuts the lid at the end so they will be safe. They don't have to launch it. They just wait for the water to rise. And God does not fear the rising of that water, for he has created the water in his control of all of nature. God doesn't need Noah to make a sacrifice at the end to feed him. God can take care of himself. And God can take care of Noah. And God can take care of you too. Whatever flood you're in, the real story is that God wants you to survive it. Other stories that said, they were out to get us, weren't true. There is no they. There is only he who makes a way. And when we can get comfortable that we're now not in control, then we can do what Noah did so well in this story, which is obey God. Now that we can admit that we're in a box that has no wheel, no oars, no rudder, no sail to catch the wind. Now 
Now you can pray, pray your best prayer. You know what your best prayer always is in these situations? God, help me is the best prayer. God, help me. You don't have to steer. You don't have to row. You just have to obey. And that takes us back to verse 5. Remember verse 5? So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. Let's put the poem analysis back up. It's the only line in the poem not repeated three to five times. I have to think that knowing that everything they said, they're going to say again in the next verse, that when they got to this one, the one that was going to stand alone, that if they were singing it, they must have put a little different tune. If they were reciting it, they must have said it a little slower. This was the part that's like, this isn't going to be said again. Catch this. Noah did everything just as God has commanded. He built the ark. He brought the animals. He waited for the rain. I think that this verse 5 is this, the axle and, and everything else in the story is the spokes coming off of it. It all turns on Noah obeyed. How hard was it for Noah to build an ark when nothing like this had ever happened before? How much harder was it for him to convince his sons and daughters-in-law, hey, come get in this big box I've just spent the last decade building. Yet Noah obeyed and God saved him. To be on paid staff here at Lakeland Community Church, you have to practice the biblical pattern of tithing, a full 10% of your household income. Every once in a while, I'll have a staff member who forgets this and doesn't do this. And when it comes to light, I have to take them aside and say, look, we can't preach a pattern the biblical pattern of tithing and reliance on God, and then have people give those tithes, which largely is used to create our salaries, and then not tithe ourselves. It's a terrible message to send that that they should trust God, but but we, for some reason, cannot. So this is a non-negotiable. If you can't change this within a year, we will have to let you go, despite all your other gifts and talents. Never had to let a staff member go for this. Next year when we do the follow-up, they have always said, I don't know why I fought this, and I don't know why I was afraid. As soon as we started giving, God took care of us. God's commands don't always make sense to us, but they are for our good, and they can save us. In college, I had a long dry spell, which pretty much followed on the heels of, of a high school non-dry a dry spell of not dating either. So it's kind of just one continues. It wasn't for lack of trying. I just, I, just, uh, I just couldn't attract a girl with bait back then. So I couldn't even go on a bad date. So, uh, but there was this one girl that I hung out with a lot. We were great friends, friend zone. And, um, but she was brilliant and she was beautiful and super funny. And we had a, a lot in common. And so naturally being a dumb guy, I started having feelings and, But I was also becoming a follower of Jesus at that time. And I was trying to turn my life around from the mess I had made that way and just do whatever God said. And uh, and so these two worlds come together as I'm driving home one night and I'm listening to a sermon on the radio and it talks about uh, the dangers of being a Christian and, and dating someone who is not. Which was her. She had a lot going for her but did not believe what I believe. And I thought, darn it. 
So I didn't quite get what they were saying would be the rub. So I went and asked my dad, and, and he agreed. He said, you know, dating in college is that stage of life when sometimes it becomes marriage. He said, when you're married, all your decisions are made as a couple. Everything you decide, you decide together. So when you become a follower of Jesus, all your decisions are made with the will of God and what you think God is saying to you in mind. And when you're married to someone who doesn't believe that, every decision is a conflict. Every decision either becomes you giving in on what you thought you heard God say or enforcing on someone else something that's very strange to them. I still didn't quite get it, but I was just new enough at being a Christian and just excited enough that I thought, I'll just do what God says. That's worked so well for the last few years. I'll just, I'll just do that. Now, 20 years later, I see what a train wreck it would have been for us to wind up together. And I also would not have married the godly woman that God did bring. God's commands don't always make sense to us at the time, but they're for our good and they can save us. It doesn't make sense to come to church on a Sunday when your kid has a one o'clock game. That is too much rushing around. It doesn't make sense for me to have to get up at 5.15 because my small group has decided they're going to meet at 6 a.m. on Tuesdays for breakfast. Sometimes I don't get anything out of church. Sometimes I don't get anything out of my small group. Sometimes we sit and just talk about what our holiday plans are. But on two occasions, when my life nearly fell apart, I had a place to go and I had guys who cared who helped me do what that song said, keep my eyes above the waves. And they gave me some good advice that set me on the path. Without all those years invested in going to church and going to a small group and wasting time and making friends, uh, there would have been no one there for me in my hour of need. I would have been alone. God's commands to Church and to fellowship and community don't always make sense to us, but they are for our good and they can save us. But I'm cheating. I, I know. I'm cheating because I didn't start out this message talking about things like uh, giving money and, and dating girls and, and having friends. We started out this message talking about dying of cancer, right? Losing jobs. Kids going off the rails. We started out talking about a flood of chaos that's going to take you wherever it wants to take you. And you're helpless to resist. So let's get back to that. This story says you are going to survive. Because God wants you to survive. He puts you in that box. And you're not in control now. But he is the ark is going to come to rest and you are still going to be inside it because that is why God put you there. So your kids may well grow up and renounce their faith and start going a bad way. And you can gnaw on them and fight with them and disown them and whatever else, ruining whatever relationship that you have. But it's not going to work. The waters have risen deeper than you can manage. You know, when they were little, you could, you could put them in a baby bath, and if anything wasn't right, you just snatch them right back out, right? And they got a little older, and you could put them in the motel pool, and if things got out of hand, you could just order them out. And if they didn't, you still had what it took to go in and fish them out. It's not that way anymore. 
they're a little big for you to fish them out and, and you don't have what you're used to in that department either. Now they're in the chaos flood that sweeps over the whole world. They're shut in their ark and you're shut in yours and you're going to take the ride. But it's God who shut you in there and all you can do now is what Noah did. Obey him. Pray for your children because God said pray without ceasing. So obey God. Stop nagging them and backbiting them and guilting them for it says in Ephesians, fathers, and I, I think he probably meant mothers too, do not exasperate your children. So obey God. Live a righteous life before your children, demonstrating that the way of Christ is a way of peace. Whether they're up for it now or not, let your witness be consistent. For God said, live righteously, let your light shine as a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So obey God. Someday your son or daughter may come back to the faith. If they do, it will be God's doing and not yours, his credit. They also may not. These are your prayers when you're in the ark. Why don't you wait and see what God can do? You know, you're talking to yourself. Why don't you wait and see what God can do? And understand you may not get everything you want on this one. The ark will come to rest on the mountain of God's choosing. I have a good friend. He wanted a promotion. He worked hard. He interviewed well. He got passed over. An inferior candidate was installed in his place. He didn't get the job. He was so angry. There was nothing he could do now to change his boss's mind. The waters had risen deeper than he could manage. Hard work and loyalty were supposed to get the desired results, but they did not. There were other forces at work, other priorities in the company now. He was shut in the ark, and he was going to take the ride. But it was God who shut him in there. And all he could do now was obey God. Scripture says, work as if working for God and not for men. God said to work hard, even for ungrateful bosses. So he did. He obeyed God. God said to work with honesty and integrity, not cheating the boss or cheating the customer with dishonest weights and measures. So he did. He obeyed God. God said flee from laziness. He obeyed God in that. Someday he might get this promotion. And he might not. He had two prayers in the ark. Why don't you wait and see what God can do? And understand you may not get everything you want on this one. And then came 2008, the mortgage lending crisis and the recession, and there were lots of layoffs. Entire departments were eliminated, including the department my friend had tried so hard to get into. That department was entirely eliminated. His own position, the position he had tried to get out of, was safe. He worked through the entire recession and provided for his family. The ark came to rest on the mountain of God's choosing. And then there was my friend Ben. Ben's wife died just a few days after Christmas. Her funeral, her funeral was scarcely over when Ben learned that he had cancer and he was in the late stages. He could try treatment, and he did. He could try to fight, and he did. But Ben was in his 80s. 
His body was old. The waters had risen deeper than he could manage. He was shut in the ark now, and he was going for the ride. But it was God who shut him in there, and all he had to do was obey God. God said, repent and be baptized, and you will have eternal life. So Ben called me, because although Ben was in his 80s, he had never been baptized. And we prayed together, and we sat in his living room, and we studied the meaning of baptism. And he was baptized in his living room. Surrounded by family and friends, it was a beautiful gathering. God said to impart your wisdom to later generations. And his grandchildren came and knelt beside his wheelchair and told him one after another he was the greatest role model of their life. Some said he was a replacement father to them. Ben knew he had two choices in the ark, two things to pray, to wait and see what God can do. And to understand, you may not get everything you want on this one. Every time we prayed, we prayed for healing or a noble passing. And after we prayed, Ben, after amen, Ben would always add, so be it. Treatment made him worse. They stopped treatment. A week later, his lungs filled with fluid. He sat in a wheelchair surrounded by family and friends in his own bedroom. In his own right mind, he said goodbye to everyone. Between gasps, he told his daughters that he was proud of them. He said he'd lived a good life and he was at peace with God. He quoted the Apostle Paul. He said, I have fought the good fight. He passed later that afternoon. His funeral was dignified and well attended. The ark came to rest on the mountain of God's choosing. For all of you who have been shut in the ark this week, you're not the first to take this journey. And these are your prayers to wait and see what God will do. And to understand, you may not get everything you want on this one. But it is he who shut you in there, and so you can do what Noah did so well and obey God in all things. He is a good God who loves you. He shut you in there so the rain would not drown you. You are not drowned yet. And you will come to rest on the mountain of God's choosing and you'll see that no matter how turbulent those waters were, you and that box and all those waters were all held in the palm of God's hand. Cindy and Lisa, thank you for, for uh, sharing your father with me. He uh, taught us, I hope, all a lot about living and dying well. The Apostle Peter connected this story of Noah to baptism. It says only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. 
And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us stand together. Uh, We've chosen the Celtic benediction again this week because it has that part about God protecting you through the storms. So let uh, let us say this blessing over one another. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.